Well, it's good to be back up here again, and we are extremely excited for this series. We're doing well as a church. We've got what I would consider great theological accuracy and depth. We have loving and familial community that uh, Sean and Kirsten testified to that continues to strengthen the lives of many people, all of us. We have stable leadership. We have strong efforts of service into the world here in the Twin Cities and beyond. We have a generous church. We're financially stable. And we're looking forward to God's continued faithfulness. We hope to build a building and continue to build these great foundations. And so in a lot of ways, you know, um, we've been here for 10 years. And for the first five years of a church plant, it's... It's hit or miss, and you never know, because that's kind of the time. If you can get past that five years, you've, you've made it. So we went past the five years, we became self-supporting, um, and here we are. A couple hundred adults, a lot of kids, and a lot of reasons to be very thankful, but also a lot of opportunity and reason to become very comfortable. There is still, though, a lot of fragility and brokenness. Sickness and death are always eminent and present. Job loss is always a possibility. Moral failures in the face of strong temptations is, are always a real possibility. There are always the potential for the escalation of the problems and challenges that our marriages and our families have. Um, we have people all around us that don't know Jesus. We have social evils that many of us could escape if we wanted to but they're still there. And there is this constant pressure and in a, in a, in an aspect of Western culture. In fact, it's a strong aspect of American life. Um, we can kind of become obsessed with and consumed by this quest for what Charles Taylor calls the normal everyday life. And the normal everyday life has become a significant focus and goal for all of the people's lives in our culture. We don't have a, a transcendent vision anymore. We've passed that as a culture. Our vision now is for what would be considered a comfortable, normal, everyday life. Work, family, enjoy the fruits of your labors. You're comfortable. And the perception, it's not true, the perception is that we can achieve this without God, forgetting that it is God who has made everything. Um, he's made us. He's made our families. He makes the, 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 the food and the drink that we enjoy, the world that we enjoy. So obviously we, we couldn't have it, but we can begin to live as if God doesn't exist. We can get to the point where we don't perceive um, hardship and we can become comfortable. And in our wealthy society, we can get there through the making enough money and the living of an orderly life. I mean, Solomon said in, in Ecclesiastes, money solves every problem. Um, and so the great temptation, I think, for us as Christians in American culture is to, is to come to this place where we think that we have arrived. Now, I think that this is not just unique to American culture. I think you see it in the Gospels. Uh, when Jesus talked about the, the rich and the poor 
or the people that were sick or the outcasts or the worst of sinners. There, There are segments of our culture that don't have as a goal to live the normal, everyday, comfortable life because they don't see that they could ever achieve it. If you're dealing with constant chronic pain, if you're dealing with being disabled, if you're an outcast for whatever reason, there is this perception that you can't. And so for those people, Jesus really um, touched a chord that, that caused them to draw to him. And in, in the Gospels, Jesus was always communicating that we're all poor, we're all outcasts, we're all sick, we're all in need of healing. It's just that there are many of us that don't see it. And that is the challenge, I think, for us in an affluent American culture um, and having the very real potential of, of building a life as if God doesn't exist because in many ways, if all we're after is the comfortable everyday life, um, it, again, it seems like we can achieve it without God. And so the church must recognize that this reality is very possible for us and that we are always in need of renewal. We are always in need of renewal. Renewal in the sense that um, we must always have this sense that uh, we are broken, we are sick, we are in need of healing, and that we, we must constantly pursue God for the experience of his, of his power in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. And when we get to the point where we no longer see or sense that we need the power of God each and every day, we're in trouble. And, and so we always have to kind of be in this process of renewal. I'm going to be drawing a lot over the course of this series from um, Richard Lovelace. He has studied probably more so than anybody um, what he calls the streams of spiritual vitality throughout Scripture and throughout history in search of what he calls the core principles of renewal. And he argues that periods of spiritual decline occur in history because the gravity of the indwelling sin keeps pulling believers first into formal religion and then into open apostasy. And one of the challenges that, that, that um, old churches, okay, or maturing churches, or churches that have kind of come to a place, I think, like us, where our foundations are good, our trajectory for the future is good, um, we, we, can, we can kind of put off the taboo sins, all right? We can, we can overcome the, 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 the big uh, do-not-dos, okay, the big transgressions. But what we have to be looking at from a deeper standpoint is, do I need God? And we can be deceived by this, this, this indwelling sin that tells us we don't need God. And we can quickly get into this place where we just start going through the actions of Bible study and of worship and of prayer. We can, we can keep doing these structures for generations, all right? 
There's a lot of traditions in the Christian church that have done the structures for generations before they completely die. But that's, that's where we're headed if, if a dynamic and vibrant pursuit of God is not what we're about and we just start doing things. So what is renewal? What is renewal? Tim Keller says that renewal, okay, and you can also kind of throw the word revival in here. And I will not use the word revival. Um, the, the books and the resources that we're drawing upon, even the text for today use the term revival. That conjures up some different ideas, but it's all within this same general idea, renewal, revival. Here's what, here's what we mean by it. This is Tim Keller's definition. It's an intensification of the normal operations of the Holy Spirit, okay, intensification of the normal things. So when we say normal things, conviction of sin, regeneration, conversions of non-Christians to Christians, uh, cleansing of ourselves through the truth, a greater assurance of the grace of God, normal things, okay, not healings or speaking in tongues or those kinds of things. Those are the extraordinary. We're talking about an intensification of the ordinary, through the ordinary means of grace. What are the ordinary means of grace? Preaching, teaching, counseling, prayer, worship, the sacraments, these kinds of things, the church at work in our lives. So it's an intensification of ordinary things. That's what we're going after. That's what we're going after. That's what we constantly need to be going after. And when we talk about renewal, we can be talking about something that's widespread, Okay, so that it affects not only uh, a few churches, but maybe cities or even nations. Okay, the Great Awakening was a, was a revival, renewal time that affected a very large group of people, large geographical area. Or it can be small, just a few people. It can be sensational and publicized and written down in the history books. Or it can be quiet and nobody ever hears about it. They're always seasonal, and, and the real challenge in it, which is obviously uh, an aspect of the grace of God, is that God has to send it. We can't manipulate or control the Holy Spirit. But we can pursue him. And, and we can ask him to renew us. Jonathan Edwards defines a renewal as not a special season of extraordinary religious excitement. Rather, it is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit which restores the people of God to normal spiritual life, to normal spiritual life after a period of corporate declension. Now, we, I don't feel like we've had declension. We haven't, I don't think we've declined. I don't feel like we have slided back as a church. I don't feel that at all. I think we're going forward, and I think we can continue to go forward. But as we go forward... Um, we constantly need to be considering and pursuing the renewal of Jesus Christ. I don't want us to get excited about a building. We're going to hopefully build a building or restore a building or whatever. I don't, want us, I don't want that to be the focus of our excitement. I want the focus of our excitement to be the ordinary work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. People coming to know Jesus Christ, people growing in Jesus Christ, and the world being changed slowly and steadily around us through our efforts to bless it with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. And so we're going to use the books of Ezra and Nehemiah to focus on these things. And we're looking at like 19 weeks, 20 weeks including Easter. And we're going to be looking at different aspects 
um, of what it means for us to pursue and engage in renewal. And we're going to pray, okay? And we're going to pray for God, the Holy Spirit, to do this work in us as we go through it. And we'll be increasingly talking about and encouraging house churches and individuals and, and, and households to, to be engaging in some of the things that are needed for renewal. Um, and so Ezra and Nehemiah, where did these two books, not usually read, okay, they're not great grand books holding the great doctrines of, of theology and scripture, um, they are two historical books. They're small historical books, but they are critical. And so let me give you a little bit of the backstory to these two books. So as we have preached and taught throughout our history here at Twin Cities Church, um, God called the nation of Israel to himself. And it would be through the nation of Israel that God would bless the nations with a child who would become king, destroy evil, and bring the, the kingdom of God into this world. But before that happened, God was going to work through this, this nation of Israel to make it a holy nation and to make it distinct among the nations around it. And so God called them. He gave them a law through the, through the prophet Moses. And, and after generations and generations, they eventually had a king. But God had told them, if you, if you follow me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will I, I will." bring you into exile into foreign nations. So they greatly prospered under King David and partially under King Solomon. But because of King Solomon's idolatry, in fact, it was intermarriage, just like what we see here. Because of King Solomon's idolatry, the nation broke up after him. So the nation broke up into, into two pieces. Israel, which were ten tribes, the ten northern tribes of the nation of Israel, and then there was Judah and Benjamin, okay? It was like the north and the south. There was a split. There was a divide. And so the ten northern tribes were known as Israel, and eventually their unfaithfulness and idolatry led God to bring in the Assyrians, and the Assyrians took Israel captive and dispersed them amongst its empire. A century or so later, God brought the Babylonians in to take captive Judah and Benjamin. But the, that, this exile was a little different. It was going to be for 70 years. And after 70 years, God was going to work in the kings of Babylon and Persia to again release Judah and Benjamin to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild its walls and to rebuild its temple. And so the story of that return is Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra really recalls um, the sending of a, a group of people back to rebuild the temple. And Nehemiah is the story of, of Nehemiah leading a people back to rebuild in its walls. And between the two books, you have the temple and the walls rebuilt. Now, this was a significant hope Right? This was a significant prophetic hope that the nation of Israel held. The prophet Jeremiah said that Babylon is coming. So before Babylon came, they were told, Babylon will come, and they're going to take you captive, and you're going to be held captive for 70 years. So that happened. It happened. Also while they were in Babylon, the prophet Daniel 
um, was told by God that after, at the moment the, the king released the people of God to go back to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, from that moment, from that moment when the king said, go back to Jerusalem to rebuild it, the countdown began about 480 years. The countdown began for the coming of the anointed one, for the coming of Christ. And so here's Israel, excuse me, Judah and Benjamin, called Judah. Judah's in Babylon, and Babylon gets taken over by the Persians. And so they're in, they're in these four nations. They're enslaved, which is the te- what the text referred to. They're enslaved, and they're waiting. They're waiting to go back. They're waiting to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild because they know that it's going to happen. But they're not just waiting for that. They're also waiting for the king. And so here you have these two hopes that are being prophetically announced to the people of God in their exile, in their slavery. They're not in control of their own destiny. And so they're waiting for this hope. And finally, the edict comes. Hey, we get to go back to Jerusalem. We get to go back to rebuild our homes and the temple and the walls. We can become a people again. We can be revived again. He said here, God is bringing us some reviving and allowing us to come back. We're still slaves, but we can now at least have the protection of our own walls and worship our own God in our own temple. So that was one aspect of their hope. The other aspect of their hope was this promise of a coming king. And so they get back. This is this, we're going we're gonna to cover a lot of the books right here this morning. They get back, and it takes them about 14 years to rebuild the temple. And then the king of Persia sends Ezra, because Ezra has this, this calling of God to teach the Bible to the, to the people now that they've kind of become restored in Jerusalem. And so the king sends Ezra, and Ezra comes, and they celebrate the, the, the building of the replacement temple, and they have a huge worship celebration. And that ends in chapter 8. And here in chapter 9, right at the beginning, it says, and after these things, okay? So it's taken like 14 years. There were some starts, some stops, some opposition, some threats, but they finally got it done. And then it says, and after these things, they came and told Ezra what was going on. Because Ezra hadn't been there. He was in Persia. Formerly Babylon. So he comes and he teaches and they consecrate and they says, oh, hey, Ezra, by the way, you know, for the last 10 or so years, um, we've been marrying the women of the foreign nations. And, and I think the text is really incredible. Ezra, <laughs> he pulls hair out of his head. He pulls hair out of his beard. Now, I've never pulled my own hair or anybody's hair out of their heads, but it's got to hurt. And he rips his clothes, and he sits down and is appalled. He's appalled. This was the very thing that drew Solomon away from worshiping God. He married women from foreign nations. 
that worshipped other gods. And if you're a student of human nature, or if you are married, or if you just observe marriages, men will do most anything they can to make their wives happy. And that's what happened. That's what happened to Israel. To please their wives, the men started serving and worshiping other gods. Now, the text here says, it doesn't say that the, the law of God said, do not let your sons marry foreign daughters and do not let your daughters marry foreign sons. But in this text, it just says, the men and their sons married foreign women. Were they just attracted to them? The text doesn't say why. Were there not any women in Judah that returned with them? We don't, the text doesn't say why. But it, it seems to me that here they are, they have, they have experienced and received what they hoped for. Hey, we're back home. It's time to start building houses again. It's time to start plowing our fields. It's time to start getting married. There's an attractive woman. I think I will marry her. They were comfortable. They're just starting to live a normal, everyday life. They were no longer in exile. They were no longer in the land of slavery, even though they were still slaves and under the rule of the king of Persia. But they weren't feeling it because they weren't there. They were home. And they were rebuilding. And they were comfortable. And they began again to disobey the law of God. See, they had these two hopes. We want to go back home. And they also had the hope. Hey, there's the coming king. Just like us. We want to follow the word of God and build lives of wisdom with our work and with our families and with our money and with our food and drink and neighbor. We, those are things that are called wisdom in the scriptures and they are good pursuits and we are commanded to do them and to do them in a righteous way. But they can never become our hope. We can be like Israel, Judah, and be faithful in these things, thinking that once we achieve them, they will bring us what we want. And we can lose sight of this longer term, greater hope that the king is coming, that we're really still in exiled, occupied territory. That's where we can be. If you look at his sin, if you look, excuse me, if you look at Ezra's prayer, if you look at Ezra's prayer, there are five qualities that you see in his prayer that are very consistent with what Lovelace has found to be core principles that govern and strengthen and promote and initiate renewal or revival. One, there's a deep acknowledgement of sin and shame and guilt, and we're going to get into these things in more detail. There's a confession of transgression. A transgression is a violation of a law. Okay, it's not just general sin. General sin can be called a disordered love, something that you love more than what is right or good or true, something that you love more than God. 
But a general sin is anything that is just not good, not beautiful, not excellent, okay? Whereas a transgression is a violation against the law. Transgressions are sins. So there's, there's a deep acknowledgement of sin, shame, and guilt. There's a confession of transgression. There's an acknowledgement of God's justice and righteousness. God is right. God was right to have punished us by exiling us to Babylon because we were unfaithful to him. They weren't angry at God for what had happened. They were acknowledging that God was just and right to punish them. There's an acknowledgement too, though. So in the midst of the judgment of God, there's an acknowledgement of the greater mercy and favor that God bestows. And he says a great phrase, another aspect of it, God has punished us less than what we deserve. God has punished us less than what we deserve. God has punished us, and we deserve it, but we deserve a lot more. But because of God's unfathomable grace and God's unfathomable love and his favor toward us, we have the ability to experience a revival. We have the, experience to, to, we have the opportunity to experience him in a real way in a powerful way, to experience his power. So these five things, a deep acknowledgement of sin, shame, and guilt, confession of transgression, an acknowledgement of God's character in, in his judgment, in his justice and righteousness, an acknowledgement of God's overwhelming and unfathomable grace, and a recognition that we deserve worse than we get. Those are five critical pieces. We're going to break them out. So God is in the work of renewing and reviving. So what do we do? What do we do? If you're thinking there, okay, yep, I've become comfortable. Yep, I make a lot of money. Yep, I've got a home. I mean, you guys, this is me. I mean, I told her house church this week. You know, I'm 46. I've worked a long time to get to this point. I've been in professional ministry for over 20 years. 10 years in this church plant, 10 years in a prior church gone through a lot of conflict, a lot of struggle, okay? There were big seasons where we didn't get paid, all right, or where we didn't know where the next paycheck was coming from. We've had great seasons of renewal and refreshment in God's provision. We've had hard times as a family in a number of ways, okay? We've gotten to this point now. I, I love my wife. I love my kids. I enjoy them. I love my work. I love studying the Bible. I love preaching. I love working with leaders. I, I love leading house church. I, I really thoroughly enjoy it. I enjoy the work that we're doing from a volunteer standpoint with the schools and with Twin Cities Ministries and going overseas. I love, if you guys know me, I love food and drink, the fruits of my labors. I really enjoy my life. I really do. This could easily be me. Just settle into being comfortable. I've arrived, and I could maintain. Except the problem is, if you look historically, and if I really look deeper beneath the surface, there's a lot of fragility that I have, quote, control over and that I have absolutely no control over. 
I need God every day. We all need God every day. Because we are going to experience trial and conflict and suffering. And without him, we won't make it through. Paul says, I know that God is going to deliver me. Deliverance is I'm freed from my suffering. Deliverance is that I will have the courage and the grace to face my suffering well so that it doesn't destroy me or the people around me. That is what deliverance is. And if I look into the lives of my family and of the church, my own heart and the lives of the people around me, there is a great amount of need for God. There are people that I, that I know and love that don't know Jesus, and it is my greatest burden. It is my greatest burden, and there's a lot of hardness in their hearts towards Christ because of their past. And so I'm constantly at this, in this tension. When do I... When do I press the gospel? When am I, when am I sensitive? I, it's constant. It is a huge source of frustration and impatience in my life because I love them and I want them to understand the gospel. But I could be too pushy, and I've done that in the past, or I could be too timid, and I've done that in the past. I really would like to be, you know, just right. <laughs> and so that's a huge huge prayer in my life and it's and, and and it's because there are people in my life that need Jesus Christ well we can approach this in a number of ways one if you're in a place of being comfortable if you're in a place of being comfortable and you sense some conviction over the series you could say you know what I'm going, to get to, I'm going to deny all of my pleasures. I'm going, to, I'm going to get rid of the things that bring me any sort of joy, and I'm going to just pursue God. I'm going to just pursue God through denying myself any pleasure. This has been done throughout various traditions and history. What will happen is jealousy, covetousness, and bitterness will come in, and you'll become judgmental and arrogant towards those who are enjoying life, and you will be failing to obey Jesus' command to enjoy what you have. So this is a religious approach. Okay, I am enjoying my life too much. It's time to stop enjoying those things and to just really get hard on myself. It's not the, it's not the answer. It's works-based. You're going to think that, that obtaining God's favor is going to come through you suffering. And that by enough suffering, God owes you. You'll experience God's power because God owes you his power because you've suffered enough. It's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. Or you could get really religious. Okay, Again, if you're feeling comfortable, feeling like you've arrived, you know that you need some more discipline in your life, so you're going to get really serious and afflict yourself with all those spiritual disciplines. You're going to pray more faithfully. You're going to fast more faithfully. You're going to focus on doing good works and social causes, which is one of the streams that has taken root historically. People feeling a sense of revival, they just start doing a lot of good deeds. That's a part of it, but it's not the whole thing. Just like fasting and prayer and the disciplines are a part of it, but it's not the heart of it. It's not the heart of it. Doing things can easily distract our consciousness, consciences and give us a sense of, of, of and appeasing them a little bit. 
But again, this is works-based. It's works-based. To appease God and to earn his power, to earn his favor, to earn his good work by the things that you're going to do to draw him. Or you can be like the rich young ruler. So those are two, two religious responses if you're going to feel conviction over the course of this series and want to get really serious. You can deny yourself any pleasure. You can hit the spiritual disciplines real hard. A non-religious response would be like the rich young ruler in the Gospels. Hey, my life is good. I'm even moral. He comes to Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And he says, well, you know the Ten Commandments, da 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 But he doesn't list all ten, and Jesus leaves out, do not covet. And the guy says, well, I've done all of these things. But he doesn't address coveting. And so God, Jesus, knows that this man struggles with coveting and says, oh, I want you to sell everything you have and follow me. And this image is always in my mind. Can you imagine? The man turns his back on Jesus Christ and walks away. He turns his back on Jesus Christ and walks away. You know, he came to Jesus because he knows that he was missing something. But he didn't like Jesus' answer. Turns his back and walks. How many times over the course of that man's life and the decades to follow did he think back to that day? If only I had responded. If only I'd responded. He couldn't stop loving his possessions. And he was sad. The text said that he was sad. Did his sadness ever go away? So those are for the comfortable. What's the gospel to say to the comfortable? You know, Jesus used his riches. Jesus used his glory. Without Jesus' riches, and without Jesus' glory, he wouldn't have accomplished what he accomplished. It was because he was God. And it was because he was rich. Not rich from a financial standpoint, even though he was the possessor of the world. It was because he had those things that he was able to do what he did. Because it would, it, he, what Jesus did had to be done by God. And he gave them up. He gave them up. He gave them up to enter into our suffering. To enter into our world. To enter into what it meant to be poor and sick and depraved and without hope. And so he gave up what he had. He was rich. And he enjoyed it. He possessed all things and he enjoyed it. He had full glory and he enjoyed it. But he gave them up. And in so doing, he gained an inheritance. We are his inheritance, the scriptures say. You know, one of, the things, one of the things that Paul prays for in chapter 1 of Ephesians is that we would understand the value that we are to Christ as his inheritance. We also get an inheritance, but what Paul prays that we would know is the inherent value that we are to Jesus Christ as his inheritance. He gained us. He wouldn't have had that if he didn't give it up. And he became Lord and King over all people. The text says, it's Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
So he came to a place of great glory and of great wealth by having it and then giving it up. There's no, there wasn't value in just giving it up okay, as if it was a moral thing. It was required of him. He was rich and became poor so that we could become rich. And in so doing, he became rich. It says, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross and scorned its shame. If you are comfortable, use it. There's one of the parables. God says, use the world's money to gain influence. And you're like, that's a weird parable in teaching Jesus, but that's exactly what he's saying. He's not making a joke. If you are comfortable, use your positions of comfort. Use your money, use your time, use your house, whatever it is that you enjoy, and enter those things into the work of service as a sacrifice to him and see what God does with it. Don't hold on to it and just keep your comfort to yourself. Give it away, and God will bring you greater treasure. That's what Jesus says. If you've given up the things in this world, I will multiply them, not only in this world, but in the world to come. So what if you're still in exile? What if you're not comfortable? What if you're still pursuing the good life here on this earth? Well, you could boast in your poverty as being more holy than those who are rich. And there are arguments and traditions within Christian, the Christian church that says if you're rich, you're in sin for being rich. The goal should be poverty. This is why the Catholic Church requires a vow of poverty for the priests. They believe that poverty is inherently righteous. Jesus says not to show favoritism to the poor or to the rich, but to be just and fair. There is no righteousness in being poor. It doesn't save, and it brings, again, judgment against those who are rich. What is the gospel in this? Poverty doesn't save. Boasting, isn't. Boasting in it will only bring smugness and coldness. And we need to see that we are all poor. We're all poor. The scriptures use the metaphor of poverty, especially in the gospel of Luke, to show our spiritual poverty. And Christ entered into poverty so that we could have his riches. Our exaltation isn't in our poverty. Our exaltation is in Christ who fills us with contentment. Christ has promised to provide for our needs here on earth and to fill the void that we feel when we are weak or poor or sick or outcast. He will bring the contentment. It doesn't come by boasting in our riches or in our poverty. And what if you're in exile and suffering and not comfortable? And that's been your experience. And you say, why wouldn't I pursue being comfortable? I grew up in poverty. I grew up in, in, in conditions that are unspeakable. And I will never live that way again. And so the goal in life is to become rich and comfortable because of the pain and suffering that you lived on this earth. You'll never leave the sadness that the rich young ruler demonstrated. It cannot be your goal. I understand the temptation. But again, Jesus 
doesn't promise to make rich, doesn't promise to make poor, but he does promise that he'll remove the need. He'll remove the sense of need. He'll remove the discontent. And in him, we find wholeness and riches. Sometimes materially, sometimes not, but he does promise to provide for what we need. And that trust and faithfulness of God is then what fills us and what meets the need. So we want to make sure that we do not stay comfortable and we want to make sure that we don't pursue that. That's what we're going to be looking at over the course of this series so that we can enjoy a deeper sense of God's Spirit at work in our lives. And the power of God is what we're pursuing, not comfort, not the everyday normal American life. Let me pray.